special edition of the Rippercast. In the past, we have frequently received requests from some of our listeners who, although they listen to the podcast, are not completely knowledgeable about the details of the Jack the Ripper case, and they have asked us to do a more general podcast on the subject, a primer episode, to help bring them up to speed. So we are endeavoring to do that with a series that will focus on three separate aspects of the case. One, the police and procedure of the day, two, the suspects, and three, the victims. These three podcasts are aimed at the listener new to the case, and not to those who have an extensive knowledge about Jack the Ripper already. We will of course not be able to cover every detail in these three podcasts, but we hope to provide our listener with enough basic information to give them a jumping off point so that they might be inspired to research and learn more about the case. Joining me today on this special Primer podcast, Police Edition, are the noted authors Neil Story and Neil Bell. Neil Story has written numerous books on criminology and history, such as The Dracula Secrets, Jack the Ripper, and The Darkest Sources of Bram Stoker, Victorian Prisons and Prisoners and East End Murders, and The Victorian Criminal, which you may want to check out because it contains a chapter on Jack the Ripper as well. Neil Bell is also a noted Ripper author who has published articles on police procedure and on the officers involved in the case. Welcome, gentlemen, and thank you for being here today. Hi, Alan. Hello, I'm here. Let's start off by discussing the types of men who were walking the beats of the East End during the so-called Reign of Terror. What can you tell us about the sort of man who was recruited to be a police officer during this period in history? And that's a hell of a remit, isn't it? My goodness. Absolutely. Would you like to think, should we start, where, where did these police officers come from? Now, I think this is something that Neil and I have both looked at in some depth over the years, and from my point of view as a as a genealogist as well. And a few years ago, I, I wrote an article about the Metropolitan Policeman. And it was interesting, quite revealing to see that the recruits seemed to predominantly come from ex-agricultural laborers, and many of them had gone into the military. Um, and many of them had been born outside London. Does that sound pretty good to you, Neil? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, the thought process at the time was the the uh, foul, polluted city of the London bred um, rather weak, weak men, whereas mm. the open countryside bred uh, rather strong, fit young men. Absolutely right. It was a, it was a key that they, as part of the recruitment, they had to be in good health and and aged between 21 and 27 years. And I'll quote it to you. That, this was what they stated. It said, not less than five foot nine, nine inches tall. They had to be able to read and write legibly and have a, and I'll quote, a fair knowledge of spelling, unquote. And preference was always given to men of a, of a military background, uh, but not just a military background, but they had to have a good disciplinary record. You, you don't want somebody that's been hauled out of the military for fighting or all the similar. Yeah. But but what is quite nice as well that you had guys from the navy and at this time the the fire service was also connected and run by by the police so if there was a shout the, you'd often get these guys who had been sailors uh, that would be put into the police fire brigade why did they want guys from the navy and the fire brigade well they're going up ladders these guys would be used to going up heights going up in the rigging and they they were all ran they were sort of more more uh, high altitude sort of fellows you know <laughs> hmm. and, and hardy sorts that were ideal for the fire service whereas the the man on the beat well it, it was ideal to be an ex-soldier because they could be dropped at, you know just about anywhere in the world with the great british empire as it was 
uh, soldiering was, of course, different, but they would be used to discipline and they would certainly be used to uh, dealing with crowd control, that, that's for sure. Yeah, I mean, basically, uh, recruitment, as Neil says, they were looking for people that could uh, read and write and do simple numeracy um, uh, uh, sums and, and so on and so forth. I think if we, if we just look at the applicants, now, applicants wouldn't just write in off their own back. They would have to produce letters of recommendation from respectable members of society, such as doctors or, or clergymen. And, and there was no induction booklet or, <laughs> that you'd have today. Experienced police would, would often explain frankly to recruits that their position in society would be ambiguous. It, it was made clear that they would lose friends and that they, as people they would have to be careful uh, what they did their behavior would have to be regulated and they would have to understand that people would be conscious of what they said to them as a serving police officer you know they might be cold-shouldered by neighbors who feared associating with a policeman living next door might imply they were an informer so, so as a result policemen tended to socialize with, with with just one another and that's why they set up their own clubs and organizations for, for entertainment and sports and, and certainly worship there was a quite a strong uh, theme of, of uh, Christianity within the police force and in fact for Christian police officers there was even a magazine called on and off duty which had strong Christian themes running through it and you'd have readers and special services written about it in, in, in on and off duty it, it, it's quite a quite a quite a tone actually very revealing into policemen's beliefs in the, in the 1880s. And what what sort of training would you say, um, once they were recruited, what sort of training did they receive? Uh, once you, if you were uh, deemed uh, suitable stock to become a police officer, the medical ex uh, examinations for recruits would take place at Scotland Yard. Basic training, which would consist of three weeks, in quotes, as a, as a candidate on probation, um, and there'd be in the candidate section house, and there'd be twice daily squad exercises, foot drill on the parade ground, for example, at uh, Wellington Barracks. That's candidates correct, yeah. Also, yeah. also had to learn about the duties of a constable and the laws and regulations governing their comms. And they'd have little instruction books, and this was followed by a beat on beat patrol, shadowing experienced constables or sergeants. And indeed, in, right up until fairly modern times, there have been tutor constables for the training of, of modern police officers. So it's a tradition that's been seen throughout the years. Yeah, I believe the, the introduction of tutor constables came under Henderson's uh, tenure, which was uh, just prior to, obviously, that he was the commissioner before Warren, if I'm correct. Mm. I don't know. Um, so, so it's one of the great innovations that Henderson uh, uh, brought into the force. Um, going on to, to what Neil said, um, yeah, I mean, is it you know the, the constables would the new recruits would take up to five, five hours uh, per day uh, constant beat work. That's the very first um, duty they'd be thrown into, and beat work was brutal. And it was thought if they could undertake that and sh show great um, perseverance in that that they'd make decent constables. Um, they'd also be taken under a wing of a new, uh, sorry, a new constable would taken under the wing of a seasoned uh, PC and, and to learn the beat, and to learn the ins and outs, to learn the, the tricks of the trade, for example, orange peeling doorways, door frames and so on and so forth. 
um, this would take a, a number of weeks. Um, some some would pass that period with flying colours, others would fail and, and unfortunately would not make the grade. Some would actually be persisted with if they've shown great application, um, they'd be they'd be given extra time to, to work through this period. And these are also tall guys. You know, it, it was unusual to be of that height at the time. Not freakishly unusual, but the point is it shows that these guys they're strong, they're healthy, their yeah. chest expansions, they might not be what we know today. I mean, most of, you know, you get a 44-inch chest, oh, that's the average ripperologist, <laughs> if not a bit bigger. Uh, but the point is, the average chest expansion of a man in the Boer War is about 29, 30 inches. So it's consider they're considerably smaller, but they, these guys are tall, they're healthy. Yeah, I mean, I mean... The reason for the height stipulation is clear. It's, it's, it's to physically intimidate, whilst not physically intimidate, if that makes any sense. It's to, you know, if somebody's causing an affray, causing being a right so-and-so, um, the arrival of a, a six-foot-odd bobby of that build should be enough to go, oh, hold on, you know, this is a big unit I'm dealing with. And automatically people will calm down or stand back. Not all the time. And that's oh. where they, you know, that's where they physically they they did have to be big men because they did have to handle uh, physical situations. Um, but mean, but yeah, that's that's the reasons for the height stipulation that's been that, that they introduced. Yes, and we mustn't lose sight that these men have to be figures of authority. You know, they mm. are they bear the queen's warrants. That's what their yes. badges and their insignia that they carry. They are officer. Officers of the Queen's law, so they have to be imposed. Yes, they have to be able to handle themselves. You know, they, it, it, was, it was important both uh, iconically and particularly yeah. these guys around the Whitechapel area. Because if you're born and bred in Whitechapel, the chances are you will be a lot smaller than these guys from outside. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, I mean, going back to education, I also think it's important to to point out as well as is you made your way through the ranks you would have to pass exams you would have to do your sergeant's exam and so on and so forth um obviously each exam will be more difficult than the previous one once you've you've done your stint um so so th these like neil says these these weren't just you know simpletons from country bumpkins these are intelligent guys um don't, don't get me wrong as, as with any job you, you get the odd fellow who wasn't up to scratch um, well, yeah. And and the odd fellow who is probably not whiter than white, and um, it happens with it with every uh, every job. You, you always get the bad apples. But on the whole, yeah, um, the, the, these weren't weren't simpletons by far. But yeah. returning to recruits, as a little interesting aside, you know, when when the recruit was issued with his uniform, he would have had to pay a deposit of about five shillings, and it was allegedly refundable on leaving the force as long as the uniform was still in good condition. <laughs> and there's the problem. <laughs> so can you give us an idea of the average beat cop? What did his job look like on a day-to-day -day basis? Well, a policeman would work to beat. It would be a, a fresh foot patrol would leave the station, led by a sergeant, and each man would march in step to his assigned point of duty, where he would leave the file and begin to walk his beat. And patrolling at a prescribed pace, police officers would walk their beats and meet up with colleagues on adjoining beats at set points during their hours of duty. Now, the average duty hours of a police constable were standard eight hours on, 
shifts of mornings, for example, uh, would be 6 a.m. to 2 p.m. Lates, 2 p.m. to 10 p.m. And nights of 10 p.m. until 6 a.m. And that would be for 13 days every fortnight. And then with an annual leave entitlement of 10 days. Lucky devils. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, as Neil states, they'd, they'd be marched out in single file and, and, and off they go on their beat. Now, you, the usual timing for a beat in, in the east end of London or London around that time would be about 30 minutes. That's pretty much for the day beat. In, in the evening, it would be half down. The, the beats would be split, especially in, in troublesome areas. Um, for example, we've got Watkins, who walks a, a roughly a 15-minute beat, whereas uh, PC Neil with um, on Bucks Row, his beat was around about 30 to 35 minutes. Um, what they they would do, they'd, they'd um, either take uh, predominantly um, left-hand turns or right-hand turns and loop back round to their starting point. They'd pay particular attention to uh, premises that... Um, was deemed vulnerable, for example, um, warehouses, uh, jewellers, that sort of thing, shops. Um, also, um, the the uh, beat sergeant before before the guys went out would would um, muster them, and that they'd basically be um, checked if they're first of all fit enough to do the beat. In other words, they're sober, uh, and secondly, they, they've got all the right kit and they're fully dressed up correctly. Um, but also, he'd, he'd give them a brief um, and 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 tell tell the particular beat bobbies um, what buildings to pay even more specific attention to as well. So they'd be out on their beat, they'd be looking at um, checking coal holes, um, shutters were fastened correctly, doors. Um, obviously, if they'd notice problems, um, they'd, they'd go and investigate. They do, I mean, I mentioned, um, they do have little tricks. Um, for example, they'd use um, orange peel or whalebone, and what they'd do is they'd place them in, in the cracks of doors or in the, the, the cracks of the shutters on the windows. And when they come back um, around again, They'd uh, see if they'd been disturbed. Obviously, if they'd been dropped out or moved, then some of these, some you know misdemeanors probably happened. If it was still in place, then they'd leave them there. Um, so, so basically, they go around. Now, part part of their duty is to actually liaise quite often with uh, night watchmen, because um, night watchmen kind of acted as the ears and eyes of the uh, bobby when they're away from that part of their beat. Um, and it's very similar to the, the best analogy I could give is security guards today. Um, so the security guards, had, 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 um, sorry, the night watchmen, I should say, would, would obviously keep an eye on their premises and um, what's just outside. And, and they'd report back to, to the bobby when they next come around. And, and usually this, this was done over a cup of tea. Um, now, I know a lot of people would, would say, you know, that think, that's frowned upon. Um, if it was done regularly, then it probably would have been. But it was actually actively encouraged. It's a case of getting to know know the guys um, who are on your beat, the, the pub landlords. Intelligence is Absolutely. But the tragedy is that you do see uh, these guys working in the East. There were temptations and there were, uh, you can imagine the pressure of the, of the yeah. job they were on yeah. there. And yeah. that's why... You know, they would take a drink and some of them would take more than enough and they would get caught and they would be penalised for that. Yeah. And you, well, it, it's almost like they get sucked into a void, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I mean the, most, the most common um, 
reprimand it and if you go through any constable's record um it would be for drink um it's a it was a fairly common common offense I and mean, then obviously in the, in the papers they they ridiculed that they picked up on that uh, massively and ridiculed them for that um as neil says and that it's down to pressures of the job it's also down to the fact that bobby's on beats um they they did have to know uh, night watchmen, shopkeepers, and pub landlords. It was part of the, the requisite that they had to get to know, and it wouldn't be on, especially on a cold winter's December's evening, uh, to stop off for a quick shuffle on the house, as it were. And it kind of could favour with, with, with the PC. Um, you know, I'll give you a freebie, keep an extra eye out for my my uh, gaff, as it were. Yeah. Uh, and so, so you know, there, there's all sorts of temptations out there. I mean, but some pubs all around the country. Today, You'll find they they would have a side window, and around about chucking out time, or just before there'd be a there'd be a, a pint stuck on the window ledge. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I I must admit I remember that when I was a kid, really in the seventies. <laughs> I... <laughs> so some things don't change. They really yes. don't. It was these guys got got sucked in and took it to excess, but it was that pressure job. And how did they prevent, for example, if I were a criminal and I knew a Bobby walked a beat every 15 minutes and he was regular on his beat, wouldn't I just time my criminal activity to say seven and a half minutes when he's the furthest distance away and I have the best chance of having sufficient time to get away with my crime? If they were that, so my question is twofold. How regimented were they? Like how TikTok precise were they? And also how did they make up for the criminals taking advantage of their precision. Well, what the police would do at that time is sometimes the beat would vary and that you would go round the other way. And we can't say exactly what policemen would be doing exactly on that night because the sergeant marching them out would say, right, and you go round the anti-clockwise way of your beat or you have a, a varied beat. And I'm not sure because I haven't seen evidence of a beat book for the Whitechapel area, but I have seen 19th century beat books, which would give um, a layout of, of the standard beat for that area, the variation beat, and it would also point out the various points where you should check, check these particular doors a lot. But I must admit, I haven't seen evidence for one for the Whitechapel area. I don't know about or, or, or city police. Have you come uh, across one, Neil? I've come across uh, city police one, but it was some years later. I think it was 1890s, 1900s, and it was basically, it wasn't a layout. It was um, beat alterations of um, Mitre Square, believe it or not. Oh, um, okay. um, but it, it, each beat was numbered 1, 2, I think it was something like 13, with Mitre Square being the 13th one. And yes. basically... 12 was the same beat as 13, if that makes any sense. In terms of 12 was like the long version of the beat, and 13 was a more condensed version. So whether that was like day beat, night beat, I'm not sure, or whether they were just told to walk it as beat 12 or walk it as beat 13, which is a possibility. But as Neil says, they, they I mean, let's take Mitre Square, for example. There was numerous ways in and out of Mitre Square. Watkins claimed that he, he sometimes went out of the way of um, St. James's Passage, rather than back into to Mitre Street. So I think a little discretion was used, mm. um, was allowed to be used by, by the beat sergeant um, on, on, on various beats. 
Um, and another thing that the, they were told to do, especially in the evening time, was walk close to the buildings in the shadows. Um, they would have a lantern on. Um, the lantern would be permanently on. However, there's a little shutter that basically shields the light away. Um, so so nobody can see it. It's like a stealth it's stealth mode is probably the best way of describing lantern. it. Yes. So, yes. So, so basically, they 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 wouldn't exactly be advertising the fact they're approaching. If you know what I mean, they'll be in the shadows. They'd be the clothing clearly. You know, the the uniform is dark anyway, um, and the lights. Although it would be on, there would be no light showing. Um, but overall, yeah, they were allowed to lose use of their discretion as long as they kept roughly to the beat because they're expected to be at a certain point at a certain time, mainly because um, the beat sergeants and the inspectors would actually go out on time to time to, to ensure that these guys were sticking to their beats. They weren't just marched out and left to, to their own devices. They, they would be checked upon by the beat sergeant uh, every so often and expected to be a certain time. Now, if they weren't there at that time, but they had a valid reason, then fair enough you know um but it wasn't unheard of for for the odd um pc to be found in the local pub when he should have been at a certain spot uh, but they, they, those are rare occasions and they, they were reprimanded for that but but going back to the original point yeah i mean like i say they, they, they were allowed to use their discretion and use their intelligence as long as they kept roughly to the beat then then that's fine but they, but they would vary it so no criminal could say right every night Yes. He will be passing us at this particular time because yeah. the discretion was there and the variation was also built into it. And well, I think you've also, we... sorry, Neil, I was just going to say you've also got to bear in mind that there were CID and plain clothes out on on patrol as well, and mm. they they didn't have beats. They'd be here, there, and everywhere. Um, so it wasn't just the uniform. There was also you know covert policemen wandering around as well. And with those lanterns, they because they were made by different manufacturers. Some of them had a shutter to pull on a little lever. Others you'd twist the top. You'd have to make sure you got your gloves on though, because you could burn your hand. <laughs> what a lot of these old coppers used to like was when they used to wear their capes during cold nights. They could always hide the lamp underneath the cape. The lamp is maintained off, but it also means that the warmth that came from the chimney out of the top of the lamp would warm them up underneath their capes. Yeah. And also, they could just pop it underneath there if they needed to make it dark. And then if somebody was behaving suspiciously, it quickly exposed the lamp and they would bathe the area in light. Both Neil and I have got original hired present lamps and they and dowler lamps and they really do work very well, don't they? They do surprisingly well, to be, to be honest with you. I mean, especially for uh, at a fair distance, not a great distance, um, but yeah. And they, I can assure you, they get very hot. They really do. And that's why a lot of the cops they'd have on their leather belt uh, a, a sort of square with two slashes cut in it. They'd feed their belt through so it didn't stain their uniform. This sort of leather right. pouch that would go yeah. behind the lamp. We mustn't yeah. forget these guys are going out on the beat, and I think it's important to. to point out these guys are not armed they're not armed in, in, with a firearm anyway what they all they have is is a, is a truncheon soft and spring-loaded pouch on their belt they have a whistle they have a pair of handcuffs and they might be carrying something known as a come along and the come along looks like a, a bit like a pair of irish eight cuffs a figure of eight which can be or they used to be known as wrist breakers as well if you've got a felon, 
with an awkward sized wrist, it's a child, it's a female, you can just give them a twist, and spin them around, their arm up the back, and my goodness, you, you'd come quietly in a come along. Yeah. But that's that's all these guys have got, all those lonely beats of the night time. So can you tell us, um, the police station itself features in some of the Ripper story from Catherine Eddowes being locked up for a few evenings and also various people um, discussing it. Can you tell us what life is like inside the police station? Well, not just life in a, in a police station, but where did these young police officers live? Because before they were allowed to get married, remember you had to get in touch with the, with the chief constable at that time and get permission to marry. These guys would be spending a lot of their time in a section house. Now in a section house there would often be a, a retired uh, constable or police officer, maybe even a retired sergeant, and they would be the cook. They would and they would maintain the place, keep it clean. If it was attached to a fire station, they would also help maintain the fire station, make sure that the horses that the fire engine made sure they were all attended to. And it wasn't a very nice place to be because it was rather like living in a barracks just like many of these policemen had been in the army before well it's just like barrack life you're not allowed to bring women back there's regulations about drink i mean to be honest you you had to maintain your uniform at all times that's why they wore an on-duty armband because if you're on duty put your armband on if you take it off you're off duty you're walking back to your uh, section house or wherever and in these places there was literally no privacy they've got sinks troughs in a communal bathroom it's almost like being in prison and the section has house it had to be kept clean and tidy at all times and it could be inspected at any time and this is very much like the police stations themselves if you can remember police stations in if you're from great britain when you were a kid these are victorian buildings these are like the police officers themselves. They are imposing buildings. They would have the classic blue lamp of Dixon of Doc Green fame. You would have the blue lamp over the door. And you would often walk up steps to go in. So yeah. There would be an impressive door. And, the, and once you went inside, there would be a particular smell. It's been described as <laughs> the carbolic smell. The walls would often be tiled so that they could be washed clean easily. The floors would be nice. They'd be tiled or there'd be stone slabs. They, so it all could be sluiced. Because remember, you've got people that could be brought in. They're vomiting. They are bleeding. They maybe could have medical conditions, in which case their sores are dripping. It, these were... Places that had to be cleaned regularly and kept clean. So that smell and it would be palpable when you walked inside the door. And quite often they, they would you'd expect it to be cold, but they're not. Because in every room there would often be a small fireplace that would be kept going to keep these guys warm, to keep the building warm, to dry out wet floors. And and, and let's face it, if you're sat at a desk you've got to do paperwork in those days. It was the only way that you could keep warm. So you're walking into a police station. It's quite warm. It's an impressive building quite often with tall ceilings because they would worry about the miasma of the sicknesses and the disease that these people would bring in with them. So the ceilings are quite tall. And there would be the usual long wooden reception desk. 
there would be gas lamps on the wall. Often these would not be covered by any type of glass. They would have a, uh, a metal frame over them. And that's because if some crim got hold of the glass, he could smash it into a copper. Whereas the metal frames, at least if you knock it off or try and interfere with it, you know, you can't do as much harm as glassing a copper with them. Absolutely. Do you want to follow through a bit there, Neil? Yeah, I mean, as Neil's gone through the, the some of the basics with regard to the police station, it, it was uh, split into to various rooms. We'll take Commercial Street, for example. Um, that was built around about in sort of mid 1870s, I believe. But um, so yeah, you'd have your main reception desk. Um, you also have a telegraph room, which was probably not not many people would think that they would have such technology in that period. But telegraph um, was was quite uh, a common feature in all police stations. It was a quick way of sending messages around across the district, across the metropolitan area, and and the city area as well. Um, so, so there'd be a telegraph room. There'd also be a boot room, uh, obviously for boot and kit and so on and so forth. There'd also be a lamp room as well, where the the um, the uh, bullseye lamps would be maintained. They'd be, you know, stocked up with uh, usually whale oil, um, making sure they're filled up with that. Uh, that they're clean. That the glass is is not broken or chipped, and that they were usable. Um, there'd also be a parade room as well, where the guys who were about to go out onto beat would muster on, on cold winter days. But also um, there'd be a yard as well. So on the summer days, they'd be out in the yard where they'll all gather. And like I said earlier, they'll be inspected, uh, making sure the kit was, was proper and in good use, uh, making sure they that they mend themselves. They'd present appointments, wouldn't they? That would be That's the order. Right. Yeah. Present appointments and you produce your truncheon and your handcuffs and you yep. stand up there in your hands to show them to the inspecting officer. And yep. quite often you'll see photographs actually showing police officers doing that. It was something done well into the 20th century. Yeah, it's a very common thing. Um, and and it, like Neil says, it, it lasted quite a long while. Um, there'd also be a CID room as well. Now you get the odd... I'm sorry, I'm going to interrupt for one second. A CID room, could you elaborate on what that is? Oh, sorry, yeah. A criminal Investigation Department. It's the basically the plainclothes policemen. It's those uh, who are familiar with the Jack the Ripper case of um, Inspector Reed and Sergeant Thick, and you know all the plainclothes bods. Um, Johnny Upright. <laughs> Johnny Upright. That's right. Yeah, yeah. It's it's the it's a separate room, separate from the the constables. You you basically in your police you you have your two types. You have your uniform, the constables. Um, and then you have your plain clothes. Um, now, now the, the the uniform guys will be the ones maintaining order, um, and you know making sure the streets are safe and so on and so forth. The CID guys are the ones that investigate major crimes, chief crimes, and they're the, that's basically the the difference between the two. You get the same ranks of as constable in both CID as you do in uniform, but the prefix for a a constable in CID would be DC for detective constable. So it's basically your detectives. Um, whereas obviously in the in the uniform it'll be PC police constable. Um, and and the same for detective sergeant and, and so on and so forth. Um, so it was a separate. Um, it was although it'd be part of the police in that they'd have their separate kind of room where they did all their investigation. Where it's it's quite common if you ever see programs like uh, Prime Suspect or or in in America's CSI what um, 
Miami or whatever it is. It's it's the bit where all the plainclothes get together and you know do their super sleuthing, as it were. And it's a, it's a kind of slight. They they remake was slightly different, well very different from the uniform guys who was there to keep order. So basically, they had their own room. Each each police station had its CRD section or each division, I should say, had its CRD uh, um, part. And then of course it would also have cells. You would, now that, yes. They would vary in number depending on the size of the station, the, the, the area that it covered. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there was, I mean, I believe this was a later introduction with um, like a communal cell um, where, where visitors were allowed to, was it visitors and wives and so on were allowed to, to visit? I may be wrong on that, Neil. I'm probably oh. misremembering something there. In, in, in the main, I think, Classic for 1888 would, would go with solo cells. Um, yeah. And, and it, there may be a separate room where they could be, uh, where they could uh, be meet with family, but they, they wouldn't often be there that long, you see. No, no. Well, I'm, I'm thinking more, I'm pro probably thinking along the lines of actually interviews as well. Oh, yes, yes. There, there would be a room for interviews. And there would also be uh, sometimes a, a jailer. Uh, for actually in the producer in the police he could be a nominated officer or yeah. or sometimes you'd have things like jail matrons because there were complaints right. lodged yes. by the prostitutes that were arrested they want to stir up a lot of trouble uh for the arresting officers oh he touched me he did something untoward uh whereas the employment of a jail matron would mean right search woman she in a, in a suitable separate room away from the eyes of the police officers, the male police officers. We have to remember at this time, there were no WPC. They are no. oh, a far-off dream of the, of, of, of the middle 20th century, really. Uh, you found a few during the First World War, a few existed in the interwar years and in World War Two. but really, in the, in the 19th century, the only woman you would see in, in a functional job in a police station would really be the jail matron. Yes. In some of the bigger stations, you may find female clerks, but that would be very much it. Yeah. Yes, the old, the old police matrons. <laughs> Formidable women, by the looks oh, of. Uh, from from yeah, from what I've read, absolutely. Um, but they they were there primarily as new states um, to to assist in the in the searching and so on and so forth with regarding women, but also children as well. Not not just the females, but but young children as well, who are often well not often but sometimes housed in in the police stations. Um, but going back going back to you know the police station, I mean just like I say, just to distinguish between the two, the section house would be basically where where um, the single policeman stayed, slept, ate, so on and so forth. Uh, the station would be where they worked. And sometimes you get, like Commercial Street, you get a mixture of the two, where where the, the upper floors will be for, for the domestic side, you know, beds, baths, mess rooms, so on and so forth. And the ground floor um, and possibly basement will be um, administrative side, you know, the actual police inside of it. Um, but also, I mean, I think it's important to point out at this stage, you've got your married PCs who were permitted to live in certain buildings dotted across the metropolis. Um, usually police owned, uh, I believe, if, if that's correct, Neil. I don't know if you can yes, confirm I, that. Yep. Yes, I and, can confirm that. Yep, the, the, you're, you're allowed, if you're married, you're allowed to stay with your wife and your children. You'd get your coal paid for, I believe, as well. So you didn't have to worry about your coal. 
Um, uh, and in the city, the city had a slightly different regulation where the, the PCs had to dwell actually inside the, the limits of the city. They couldn't, for example, live outside in, in the Whitechapel area, although I believe that was relaxed around about the time of the Ripper murders, if not just just before or just after. I can't remember exactly um, because we have a PC Pierce um, living um, just off Brick Lane, um, I think it was in the 1890s. Obviously, he was the city PC who lived in Mitre Square at the time of the Edo's murders. Um, so I know the city did have a regulation where you had to dwell within the limits of the city, but that that was relaxed. So basically, you've got your single guys living at a section house. The reason for that is because of mustering. Should there be any crisis, any rioting, for example, the mm. Trafalgar Square riots, it was a lot easier to get all the men together when they were actually living together and going around the individuals houses and knocking up you gotta bear in mind this is before the age of mobile phones and, and taxis and so on and so forth um um so the, the guys um they're easy to get in touch with and and, and assemble should there be a crisis um, so that's the reason for section houses and, and the guys living there so basically the policemen had a hard sort of warehouse sort of life <laughs> they would if they were unmarried yeah. If they were married, they could live away, and indeed some of them lived outside the areas of, of, of their division. Yeah. But they would try to live in areas where there are other policemen, because people didn't want to live near them, and people like living next, and police would like living next door to policemen. And that's why sometimes the Metropolitan Police would buy a whole bank of houses. Yeah. And it also meant the wives keep an eye out during the day, you know, in case there's any suspicious people trying to a police officer, you know, cause trouble, you know. And quite often, in a rural community, the police house is known uh, as a place where people could run to if there was an emergency, you know. Yes, yeah. I mean, funny you should say that about uh, police um, buying up properties that are close to each other. Um, I've, I've recently discovered that uh, PC uh, Pennant lived uh, in the Peabody buildings, which was just off the Royal Mint Street. Um, but also um, PC Pierce lived there as well. Um, so I assume that they'd, that they'd had a block um, 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 somewhere situated within the, the Peabody buildings. But um, going back to the single PCs and the married PCs, I do believe, again, Neil, you'll probably be able to confirm this, um, that if you're a single PC and you happen to, to want to get married, you had to get the um, permission of your inspector um, if a oh, woman was suitable for you and so on. Is there any reports of someone being denied I've not, marriage? I've not found any. Like, what would happen if they said no? I, I don't You're think not... there would even be a report of it. The request would be made. It would be request denied. It would be yeah. as simple as that. And and the request would begin, you'd begin with your sergeant, you would go to your inspector, and quite often you'd have to be put before a, a, at least a superintendent or an inspector. And if he wasn't sure, he'd kick it up even further. I mean, it, in county constabularies, it was standard to be brought before the chief constable, and he would meet both the, the police officer and the proposed wife. Yes, yeah. Um, I, I assume personally that if your permission was de declined, I mean, you, you'd have a choice. It's the uh, job or, 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 the, or the wife or future wife. You're, you're so. absolutely right, Neil, absolutely. That, so, that you know, you'd resign. Of course, if you resign, I do believe you jeopardise your uh, pension, though. So, well, you certainly do, as, as in any job. You know, that yeah. if, you, if you say no, oh, adios. No compensation on, on your way. So, absolutely. It was a, yeah, difficult choice.
it's interesting because then that puts in mind, you know, there's these PCs, they're, where they live is controlled, and their bosses even had claim over who they married and their personal life. So it's it's quite an interesting, from a 21st century perspective of looking at being a police officer in those times and how little control you had over your own personal circumstances. Well, well, it was, it, I mean, let's take it to, to the extreme here. There was a time, um, I think it was around about the 1860s, 1870s, where you were not permitted to grow facial hair. Um, and I think that that was relaxed, which is why you see in Victorian photos a, a great abundance of policemen with beards and moustaches and so on and so forth. Um, but but earlier on, I mean, even to that extreme, you know, you 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 had to shave, you had to keep your appearance clean cut. Remember, where where do these men come from? Yes. Well, they yeah. come from the military, and it yeah. is not de rigueur to have excessive facial hair among of of the military. In the army, de rigueur is the moustache. And if you look in the 1880s, most police officers will carry on that tradition of having a moustache. But in thinking why was there this degree of control, we've got to think where do these policemen come from? And we're talking about the 18, early 1830s, 1840. So it's, they're still, in this timeline of history, a very new organisation. Yeah, and there have yeah. been real problems with establishing police forces around the country. And in fact, yeah. there have been instances of entire police forces being dismissed because they had become unruly and disorderly and drunken and that seemed to associate with prostitutes. And so this stigma lingers. And you, you've got to realise that, you know, in 30 or 40 years, of established policing, they've still got to maintain a professional image, a reputation of looking smart. It comes back to that figure of authority. It is key to the continued success of the police. Yeah. And, and it's, it's still true today, to a degree. It really is, isn't it? If yeah, you saw yeah, a really scruffy policeman, what faith would you have in them? You know, it's, yeah. it's a good start to see a smart, professional-looking man or woman in the modern world. So, so basically the, the image was shaped by the authorities to even to, you know, to the point of it impacting on the individual in who he married, what he wore, how he grew his beard and so on. All right. Um, any additional thoughts on the general duties and life of a police officer during this time period? I'd like to quote directly from the police manual and it's uh, a store of useful information for police officers by P.B. Bicknell, Chief Constable of Lincolnshire. Now, this is the 6th edition, published by Knight and Company, Fleet Street, 1882. And it says of duties for police officers, the objects of the appointment of a, of a constabulary is the more effectual prevention and detection of crime, the suppression of vagrancy, and maintenance of good order. It is the duty, therefore, of constables to apprehend all idle and disorderly persons whom they shall find disturbing the public peace or whom they shall see commit or have just cause to suspect of intention to commit a felony. It is also their duty, in accordance with orders and directions they may receive from their superiors, to enforce any of the statutes under which powers are conferred 
on them. And that's from the book. There you go. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. And the other point I would like to make is when we talk about the cells and the holding of prisoners. Now, this is key to some of the uh, suspects of, of Jack, that we have for Jack the Ripper. It's key for the holding of prostitutes and, and drunks. And it, it's, this is the step. This is the quote from the police manual of 1882. And it says, prisoners custody of where a person is taken into custody by an officer of the borough police or metropolitan police they may be brought up may be bailed at the discretion of the officer in charge and these are under the statutes of william king william under under the summary jurisdiction act 1879 and i think that's quite important to make a note of of that they, they can be discharged. Constables should be careful how they act without a justice's warrant. Important cases. When they have a prisoner in custody, how they use him. In other words, they must be careful how they question that person. Yeah. Police back in the day had more discretion in, quote-unquote, arresting someone, holding them for a while, and discharging them, which they don't really have today. If you arrest somebody, if you bring them into custody... There's an entire sort of process that has to be gone through before they can get out of that situation again. Whereas back in the day, they could just sort of bring people in and, and as you said, bail them on their own. Well, I, I, they did have more autonomy. You see, you have to remember that by modern policing regulations, they have to abide by pace and other more modern policing regulations. And, and in which case, they, they must be more certain about who they are arresting even more than ever because people are liable to sue you in the modern world whereas in the past if they had a a near to well it's likely that if they looked suspicious they might haul them in and have a little chat it was the way of old policing so what sort of techniques would a police officer use in order to secure a conviction down the road now we're familiar with you know forensic technology and all that kind of thing that they did not have available to them back then so when an officer is out on his beat and for whatever reason he has to arrest a criminal what did they rely on back then as far as apprehending and eventually convicting a criminal well, it, it, it's quite a tricky thing when we consider some of the cases of the past. Uh, you'd actually be surprised in a, in a modern court of law that, that this person was convicted. It's quite surprising. In the past, a, a police officer on his beat would be expected to, to keep his eyes open. And the, the old word, the old phrase, catching a man or woman red-handed was probably the best way you could get a conviction. So you would have to see that person committing that crime and arrest them with the blood on their hands and secure the weapon in their hand, you know, that they were using, uh, and take that person into custody, present the weapon, show their hands, you know, that they've got the blood on their hands. The victim, there is the victim. That victim has been stabbed by this knife. And the doctors at that time could compare the knife wound. They wouldn't have any DNA to work on. So they would look at, does this match? Yes, it matches this stab wound. And if you had those, that would be a very good start to obtaining a, a, a conviction against that person. If you're just hearing 
hearsay that so-and-so committed this murder if you went to their house you would have to obtain a suitable warrant uh, to gain entry and search that house or if you on arrest search that person and found something of the victim on them so for example uh, if you had somebody that that murdered somebody and took their gold watch and chain then and, they, and they, that person was arrested and they were found with that watch and chain that would be a way of connecting them to that scene of crime and to the murder but you would often find that there's great difficulty you've got some very skilled barristers out there that could say oh well he happened to just pick up that watch and chain and the knife that they found in his pocket it actually got animal blood on it because at that point in time it was very difficult in many cases to tell the difference between mammalian blood and human blood so you can see with this in mind it was very very difficult to obtain a, a conviction against a murderer unless you had extremely compelling evidence to not only uh, connect that person with that scene of crime but actually committing that crime yeah I think I think a lot of evidence, as Neil states, would fall into two reliable evidence, I should say, or, or usable evidence would fall into two main categories, and that would be the medical evidence, the evidence provided by the doctors. Um, as Neil states points out, you know, for example, a stab wound, angle, height, so on and so forth, which all could be determined, the old Sherlock Holmes techniques to a degree, but also rely heavily upon witness statement as well. If one or two people see you stab somebody, then that, that evidence would be pretty compelling or thought of as pretty compelling evidence. Um, you've got to bear in mind in that period for, for crimes such as murder and so on and so forth, you know, your, your, your prosecution will, will probably end up in death. Um, so, so it was quite in, uh, important to get it right. However, you know they used what what they they had to use. And again, going back just to reiterate, a lot of it was heavily a lot of evidence that was heavily relied upon would be witness statement from other parties who saw the crime or so on and so forth, or medical evidence. Um, there was the odd forensic evidence, for example, they you know footprints and so on and so forth, matching of shoes, um, um, if they could do um, um, circumstantial evidence, um, you know, clothing or or a, a hammer that was left behind from a robbery with somebody's initials on, and it happens to be uh, a company that, that one particular guy worked for who was you know who all of a sudden became flush with money, um, tip-offs from 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 fellow um, uh, criminals and, and so on and so forth so so whilst there was no forensics as such or decent forensics it was again reliant on witnesses uh, medical evidence and so forth in your opinion who do you think are the primary police officers involved in the case because we have inspectors to pcs to um, we have a wide range of people and i think people tend to focus on the top the McNaughton's, the Aberlanes. Who would you say, if, if if a new student to the case were really to start to delve into the police world, who are the, the key uh, police officers involved in the Jack the Ripper crimes? Problem is, with these police officers, we know their names, we've heard their statement given uh, at the inquest, but the man himself, you may find it a conduct sheet, but there isn't an awful lot of biographical detail for many of them to say, well, this man is outstanding, whereas com comparably, 
when you look at people like Sir Charles Warren, the senior officer that, that are often discussed, there are reams of biography all about them, their past history and where they came from. And I know that many ripperologists and crime historians are doing their best with the genealogical research. But to really know these men in the same way we know those senior officers is, is a very difficult thing. And, and I, I venture to say nigh on impossible in some cases. Yeah, I mean, I mean, if, I mean, for years I've always taken uh, Watkins um, as a good, reliable copper, but simply because of the newspaper report where his inspector basically stated as such. Um, so, so I look at Watkins and I think, yeah, you know, he, he knows his onions. However, when you, as Neil says, it's getting to know the guy. So, I think the best place to to look, apart from the genealogy side, is is the police records. You can still obtain the police records, and uh, Rob Clack kindly obtained. Um, uh, PC Watkins record for me and when you actually go into PC Watkins um, disciplinary side of, of his record you find that he's been found drunk a couple of times and the, the absolute shocking revelation that he was caught having sex with a woman whilst on duty now this this happened in the 1870s a, a few years before before the I think it was 1879 a few years before the murders so we've got here a guy who I've taken to be a pretty upstanding PC and this great revelation that he, he wasn't as upstanding, uh, if, you, if you pardon the phrase, as as um, as he, he I thought he was. Um, on the flip side, we look at House, and uh, I've had a look at House's record as well. And from what I can see, there's there's nothing, no disciplinary measures taken against House. I've come across a few rewards where he's been um, acknowledged for his good work in in uh, the odd uh, police order book but no disciplinary measures so it depends on what you're looking at are you looking at the individual or or you know um whether they're they're a good cop or or or, or the record um over a period of time but and the I mean, point is on the record as well they might be the only times they've got caught yeah if you see yes, what i mean yeah. he might I mean, have been I mean, getting away with it yeah, I mean, we also, I mean, if you want to go higher up the up the scale, we've got uh, Swanson who headed the, the the investigation. He was reprimanded as well. He was found inside a pub during his early years, and it seems to be quite a, a common thing when when they were younger. But um, but when you look at uh, Swanson's track record, not just in the Ripper case, but um, in other cases as as well, um, um, you you see that that he was a very good very good PC, uh, a very good uh, policeman, I should say. Um, so yeah, you know, it swings and roundabouts. You know, what do you want? Do you want a great, a great man or a good copper? And, and we mustn't judge them too much by modern standards either. You have to consider them in the context of those times. And as we've said earlier, often ex-soldiers and soldiers at that time also fought. You look on the disciplinary sheets of them, but it still well, means that they would be totally discharged as a, as a, as a, as a reprobate soldier. Well, you, I mean, I've mentioned Watkins there because that's probably the most shocking thing I've come across in looking at police records. But you've also got to bear in mind, as you stated earlier, that, that he was a young man or youngish. But this was 1879, I believe. Now, after 1875, there is not one mention of disciplinary action against him. I think there's probably one other after the Ripper murders. But what I'm saying is he seemed to have learnt his lesson. They they obviously brought him down to the lowest class, the lowest class in pay. Um, I would assume gave him a right old ticking off and said, this is your last chance to lose sunshine. And it looks like that Watkins responded. So that may be what the inspector is referring to when he says he's an upstanding PC. 
Um, so you're right. Yeah, I mean, you look at them as as uh, as young younger men, but it seems quite a few of them kind of matured and and grown out of their misdemeanours. And you know, a few, quite a few of them did not. I mean, you know, there were some that were dismissed um, whilst being uh, drunk on duty. Um, mm. But overall, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they were given chances, um, and some took them and some did not. A lot of people place a lot of importance on, say, Swanson and his opinion of who Jack the Ripper was, or McNaughton and the memo. How likely do you think it is that the higher-ups would have had an idea as to who the Ripper is? I think, personally, I think they'd have a better idea than the guys on the beat, because they saw all the information that come through. Um, Swanson, for example, collated. Every, it was ordered by Warren that every piece of uh, documentation, so on and so forth, went through him. So Swanson would have a good idea. However, these guys were not on the streets. So again, it's just a case of you know these guys are getting the information coming through second or or third hand, whereas the PCs on the street would hear rumours, talk, and so on and so forth. Um, but overall, I'd say Swanson would be in a better position than the regular beat bobber, but that's just my opinion. I, I'm I'm quite with you on that one, Neil. I, I agree. In, in army life, in, in police life, the rumour mill can be rife. And you look at many cases from the past, and the beat bobbers will say, oh, we all know who it was. Or there would be rumours about, well, we, we heard this. Yeah. And maybe those further up the chain, it has been investigated by CID. The bobbies investigate that through, and yeah. it proved otherwise. Yeah, they, they might not be party to the end result. So, yeah. Hmm. I mean, the classic is, is it Spicer? I can't remember who it was now. Um, but, yeah, they're, 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 they're in their memoirs as they're retiring, would state that they'd met Jack the Ripper or knew who he was or so on and so forth, and nothing was done about it, and I resigned because of this. I think it was Spicer who did that. I'm just um, going off the top of my head here. Um, but um, the reality may have been, as, as Neil points out, that, that um, Spicer may have come across this suspicious character, reported it to his superiors. It may have been investigated by CID, who thought nothing more should be done about it, but not relayed that information back to Spicer. It, it wasn't his place to know. They're, they're not there to report back to him. They're there just to investigate. And they investigated, deemed that it was an, a non-lead. On to the next one. They weren't obliged to inform Spicer of, of their outcome. So then Spicer would, would not necessarily know what had gone on. And um, I mean, hopefully he would have used his common sense. Um, but um, he may, the, the BPC may not necessarily be aware that the actual thing was investigated. That's why I, I like, you know, Inspector Littlechild. I mean, this, this is the guy that was serving throughout, before before and after the Ripper crimes, or the canonical five, and certainly beyond. Uh, and I think Littlechild being a member of Special Branch, the, the few words that we hear from him uh, on on the matter, I, I think are, are, are important and, and worth listening to. I think they but have the some weight about it, yeah. I, I think so, but... We also have to be careful that, that, again, even these guys in senior positions will have their own opinions. They'll be formed, I think, possibly on a more uh, informed level than, than many beat coppers. But we have they will be their opinion. And if we yeah. remember, you know, when Chapman's caught, dear old Abilene is on record saying, well, well done, you've caught Jack the Ripper. Yeah. But then again. Yeah, the, 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 that's that's what people seem to take personal opinion as as that that is the truth. 
um, which draws a lot of confusion when we go down to, we could go to the Swanson Marginalia as well, um, and so on and so forth. But um, yeah, absolutely right. What do you assess as the likelihood that a modern day researcher will ever be able to gather sufficient convincing evidence as to who was Jack the Ripper? Well, it, it's a very tricky subject, but I think Chris Grayling and, and John Rumbelow and, and certainly my dear friend Stuart Evans have put it into a very succinct way of saying things, and, and, and that is that on the Day of Judgment, it, it, it is liable to be that they will say, right, Jack the Ripper, stand up, and we could all be saying, who? Yeah. It's possible, yeah. Yeah. but it okay. could also be one of the suspects that we have known all of these years and argued these cases. But as Stuart has always pointed out, to actually convict that person in a court of law, I, I don't think we will ever be able to amass that weight of evidence to build an absolutely watertight case against any one of those suspects. I might be sticking my neck out here, but I, I'm afraid that I think we'll be hunting Jack for a lot more years to come. I, th I think your neck is pretty safe now, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I mean, I was talking to uh, Merv Mitten, and Neil knows him. We've actually got his book. He's quite a, a major police authority, isn't he, Neil? Yes, um, a, a, a um, he, yes an absolute gent. And I was talking to Merv. He actually was a young copper in the east end of London during the 60s. <clears throat> he was based at Arbor Square. But he was sent to um, Commercial Street Station before it was being decommissioned, I think, in the, the early 70s. I think it was um, and in Commercial Street Nick the, the, at the top there they had piles and piles of old um, witness statements reports so on and so forth and according to Mervyn these dated back to the, the late Victorian period and because it was being decommissioned um, basically they were clearing it out Mervyn is a young PC is one of his very first jobs in the police force was told to gather all this um, these piles of um, uh, witness statements and burn them in the yard and that's what he did and that is the and I know this is a bugbear of Don, Don Rumblows and probably a few others that is the the police's mentality to to such items to us they're absolute gold dust they're, they should be precious to them it's just they they just use up space valuable space the police are not great historians unfortunately however now we've got the friends of the met society and also i do believe the city of london have got a similar society um, and they've both got their uh, museums and um, i think the mentality is kind of changing now but um until in recent years they're they're their um, attitude towards the, their historical documentation, unless it was major crimes like the siege of Sydney Street um, uh, inquest, um, and they had the houses built and plans and so on and so forth. Um, but but everything else was just simply destroyed or thrown away. I mean, for God's sake, we we all know the story of how Don Rumbelow found the Mary Kelly photographs. They were chucked in a in a skip, ready to to go off, and uh, Don rescued them. So. I suspect if you're looking for evidence to convict Jack the Ripper in the police archives, um, I don't think it's there anymore. Do you think that the failure to apprehend Jack the Ripper was the fault of the police at the time? No. I don't think so. I think it was the, the lack of technology. I think in the modern world, the amount of CC that is around there, and as said about DNA, uh, I, I think we would we would be a lot closer. Of course, serial killers, even in the modern world, there are, there are some still out there that are still unidentified. They remain uncaught, even in the modern world. So 
can't say for sure, but I think we would stand a lot better chance of catching Jack the Ripper today than we did uh, with the, the limited technology and uh, technical advances that, that we had in 1888. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree wholeheartedly with that. I think also the fact um, that people tend to view the, the Ripper case through modern eyes as opposed through late Victorian period eyes. Um, You know, I mean, take the the Goulston Street Graffito, for example, and the fact that it was erased before a photograph was being taken. Um, Now, some people think that's an absolute outrage. And and if you look at it from today's modern policing techniques, it is. It's, you know, it just wouldn't be done. It'd be, you know, if if that was ever ordered today, somebody would be up on a charge. It would be outrageous. Um, But however, in that period, um, it's understandable. I mean, photography was a new technology. It wasn't 100% successful at that time. Um, the police didn't even have their own photographers. They used to have to run out and, and obtain a trusted photographer. So, so the clue was was erased um, because obviously it was thought insightful for the Jews in the area. Now, looking like I said, looking at it from today, that's an absolute outrageous decision. But if you look at it from from a Charles Warren point of view, it makes good common sense. He's policing the area. He's ensuring that there is no further rioting. You've got to bear in mind after the Annie Chapman murders, there were some uh, attacks upon upon Jews. Um, and obviously you've got the, the Lipsky case the year before. Um, so, so the Jews are obviously not looked upon from the scene as quite, quite murderous, you know. Um, so he's looking at maintaining the, 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 sorry, he's maintaining order in the area. Um, so I do think there's a tendency to look at the case from today's perspective and not try and put oneself in, in the, the shoes of a Victorian policeman or inspector or, or CRD. I certainly agree with Neil there. I mean, in, in the appointment of Charles Warren, there had been these dreadful riots, you know, Trafalgar Square and outside. And if, if there's the slightest whiff of something that could stimulate a major riot, his remit, to, he must stop these riots. He must not... Yeah. Under any circumstances, allow them to take place. He is absolutely uh, acting within what he has been instructed to do. And I'm absolutely convinced that he would be uh, assured in his own mind that he was doing the right thing at that point in time. You've got to look at the leather apron scares. I mean, uh, as Neil says, you know, you know, there are already, there's vigilance committee, there, there are bands of individuals who are arming themselves. Women of the East End are arming themselves. And the last thing you want is something that's going to name a a, a persecuted group on the East could literally spark uh, a a riot, the like of which uh, the East End had never seen before. It would set the place alight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got to bear in mind why Warren was brought in. I mean, uh, Henderson, the previous commissioner, um, he saw through the, the, um, the Hyde Park rioting um, and the, the non-writing in Oxford Street, which finally did for him, but he was actually seen as quite a lax commissioner, with the PCs allowed to do pretty much as they wanted, when they wanted. There was no order, there was no discipline, so they wanted a man who could install order and discipline. And Sir Charles Warren had that reputation, and by golly, he did. Unfortunately, in the eyes of the public, he went the, from one extreme to the other, 
and he was too harsh and, and he, he was basically accused of militarising the police. Um, so it's a case of, you know, what do you want? <laughs> you know, it, I know it's, a, it's hard to strike a fine balance, but the, the powers that be wanted a guy who not only installed discipline and order within the police force and therefore the community, but also somebody who was who was um, very strong um, um, character as well, which obviously clearly Sir Charles Warren was. He, he was probably overly strong, so he did clash with his superiors and, and those that did employ him. Um, but I think Charles, Sir Charles Warren is, is often vilified for, for for the wrong reasons, really. I think he's probably overly vilified. I agree. As the goal of this Primer podcast is to help educate the newcomer to basic police practice and procedure in the Victorian era, what resources would you recommend to this person whose interest has been sparked? Well, I, I would suggest if you want a, a nice beginner's guide, get yourself a back copy of Family Tree magazine. And, and this is one that goes back to August 2005. It's volume 21, number 9, Family Tree magazine. And it's an article called The Metropolitan Policeman by yours truly, Neil Story. <laughs> and you'll see there are there's a guide inside <laughs> that article of where to find Metropolitan Police records. There's all the, the relevant MEPO files down there and a nice overview of the life and work. And there's Bobby in the Metropolitan Police in the 1880s. As somebody who's, who's got a copy, I thoroughly recommend that. Um, I think um, National Archives will be a starting point, looking for the MEPO files um, for, for Met Policemen. Um, I believe the City Police uh, records are kept at the Guildhall in London. Um, there's some really cracking books out there um, to, to give you an overview of, of, of the British policemen. Uh, the Clive Elmsley's The Great British Bobby is a particular favourite of mine. And of course, um, Don Rumbelow's um, I Spy Blue, which gives you an insight into the history and the formation of the City of London Police Force. They're, they're two of my, my favourite books in particular. There are extremely good records for the, the Metropolitan Police that you, you can now access through, through the National Archives. I'll, I'll state one, for example, the MEPO 4-352-360. And these are the attestation ledgers. And the ledgers cover warrant numbers 51491 to 146379 and it's for the period February 1869 to May 1958 and they include the signatures of the recruit and a witness and they're rather good they, they can start the journey on an awful lot of research can't they Neil? Oh absolutely yes there is, it, I mean yeah I'd recommend it. it's a, it's the a first stop if you're looking into a policeman either in your family or just general interest into a PC um, those MEPO files will be the first place to look for and they're, and they're not impossible to get a good researcher to, to go and copy for you out of the National Archives. It's not long before you, you, you can end up with the whole lot on a disc. So it's a, it's a great way to start, I think. Yeah. And then, yeah. and then there's the Certificate of Service Records. But unfortunately, they're, they're January 1889 to November 1909. So it's not the Ripper years, but I, I think a lot of Ripper officers were still serving in January 1889. So, so I think, again, that's a good way to take your research a stage further if you want to. 
Well, well you've got some of the bobbies there, for example, uh, PC Neil of uh, Books yeah. Row fame, Polly Nichols, and um, they'd, they'd be joining around about the 1860s, 1870s. So, you know, they, they were good seasoned bobbies by 1888. So, they, you know, I've come across his, um, his signing of his oath, um, uh, PC Neil's. So you do get the odd ripper-connected um, PC in those early early records. And it is lovely to see that signature, isn't it? Yes, yes. I think, you know, it goes beyond the illustrated police news images. You can actually start to see the man. And I yeah. think that, that's very important when, when you're starting some serious study into yeah. the, the police of that time. See beyond the... Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I remember, it's probably going to sound sad to people out there, but uh, great excitement at uh, finding PC Alfred Long's signature. Obviously, Long was the guy that discovered the apron and the yep. graffiti in, in Goulston Street, so to actually see his signature, um, it's, it's a beautiful signature, I must add, um, as was of, of the period. But but to see that, it's like, wow, that's, that's like making a connection, albeit small. It's oh, the yeah. guy's actual signature. That that would be something that he'd be putting on reports and in his notebook and so on and so forth. That's the style of writing. So when he wrote down the Jews were the men that would not be blamed for nothing called whichever version he put down, it would be in that kind of handwriting. But when you see that, you can also see that this is a literate man. We all yes. know that they had to be to join the force. Yes. But on the wider spectrum of family history, so many people have ancestors that sometimes after a lifetime in the, in the British Army could only sign their name with an X, with yeah. somebody that's literate, written either side of it, my mark. Now, these are men that would have served in the military, they've come to the police, and to see that hand drop, it shows intelligence, it shows he can sign his name. It's, it's not something that at that period in time should be taken so lightly when you view it in a, in a, in a wider context. So I know you appreciate that, Neil. And that's yeah, why absolutely. it can make you feel very proud and very excited because it gives you that little insight to know that, you know, you are in de you're dealing with a literate person, which certainly infers this is not a stupid or ignorant person. Yeah, indeed. Indeed, it's like they, they they come alive. All you see, all I've known of uh, PC Long is what's been written in quite a few Jack the Ripper books and uh, articles and so on and so forth. Um, but this is a like like I said earlier, it's a connection to the guy, um, and albeit small, it's a simple signature, but it's there, you know. And it's so easy to brand the police of that time as ignorant. You'll you'll see oh, yeah. it in, in the yeah. popular press. You'll see everybody knows the blind man cartoon from Punch and yep. the way the police were mocked but these officers, they were not stupid, they, they were just ordinary guys, these are impressive I think they're impressive oh absolutely yes, yeah indeed and there is one other other thing I'd suggest people do if they're really interested into in the Victorian policing or, or the history of police is become a member of the Friends of the Metropolitan Police Historical um, Centre Society. Um, again, that's that's web-based, but basically it's volunteers um, who archive and look after all the records to do with the Metropolitan Police. Um, for example, they've got, I believe, the Inspector Helson's pipe and Spratlin's um, bus pass and so on and so forth. Um, if, you're, if you have any queries regarding Victorian policing, those guys are, are good guys to email. Um, I, uh, one of the committee members 
um, on the committee there is our, our own very own uh, Keith Skinner, um, who's who's to do with that that uh, society. So if you look it up on the on the website, uh, put it in a search engine. It's the Friends of the Metropolitan Police Historical Society, I think it is. To add into that, that if you start off just diving into the MePo files blindly, that's not a good way to start. Don't no. think you'll read everything from cover to cover. Yeah. What I would suggest is read some reliable books, the books that actually have the contemporary statements. Actually read those, look at the look at the newspaper articles of the time, find out a list of the police officers that interest you or the police stations that interest you. And once you've got that that list, then start tackling the MePo files and once you've got those focuses, that will really help you use those files and use your time to 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 the to the best. Absolutely, I, I I agree with that wholeheartedly. I mean, the the you know, pique your interest first of all. Focus on what you want to really look at because we can you can go down down many many paths uh, when researching. Um, and and I think the the tip of using uh, newspaper reports, contemporary reports, is very good. Um, I I often spend a, a dull Saturday, whenever it's raining outside and so on and so forth, um, just trawling through the newspaper reports, looking at various police uh, reports, um, and it, some of them are quite comical. For example, uh, DC Marriott. Um, we all know DC Marriott from his connection with the Catherine Eddowes murder. Uh, um, he was one of the DCs uh, with House and uh, Altrim who went out looking for, for people uh, um, once the discovery of Eddowes' body was made. But he was actually on patrol on, on the border with the uh, Metropolitan Police and saw a guy being arrested across the way by a young Met PC. Now, we often hear this talk that the the met in the city didn't get on and sure there was some friendly rivalry um however they did assist each other a brother in blue is a brother in blue so uh, marriott ran across to assist this young pc uh, arrest this, this young ruffian and as the, as they were rolling around uh, another uh, ruffian came out of the doorway and assaulted marriott and and ran off eventually though the the pair did uh, manage to arrest the original guy and march him to commercial street now i was looking through the newspaper clipping on this and there's more to add to it they actually arrested the second assailant whose nickname was hobnocker lever and i was rather curious as to to hobnocker lever being a, a nickname so i decided to look up um hobnocking in, in the victorian era and apparently to hobnock somebody is to uh, kick a gentleman in his genitalia so one can only imagine how um, DC Marriott was actually disabled briefly. Um, but it's little stories like that in newspapers that do interest one. Well, I can't think of a better way to end a police podcast than with the tale of the hobnockered PC. So I would like to thank our guests, Neil Bell and Neil Story. Thank you, gentlemen, for coming on and sharing your wealth of knowledge with us. Thank you, Ali, for inviting us on. Yeah. I had a great time. And that concludes a special edition of the Rippercast, the police official's primer. We hope that you enjoyed this primer episode and that you'll join us for the suspects and victims primers coming soon. We would like to once again thank our two guests, Neil Bell and Neil Story. Thanks also to Facebook.org for hosting this podcast and Jonathan Menges for allowing us to put forth this primer edition. And thanks to you, our listeners. Until next time.
Anyway, I shall have a good tug on my golden Virginia.